Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Star Trek Insurrection. In the year 2021, insurrections are a thing that fascists do, but they used to be pretty cool. Oh, okay, because I glanced at your phone and I saw the Capitol riots. This year, the word insurrection, that's just where my brain goes. But up until January 26th of this year, my brain would immediately go to Star Trek if I heard the word insurrection. So yeah, yeah. hopefully okay. my brain will go back that way again soon. Uh, today's film, Star Trek Insurrection, is hopefully a, a more uh, moral and successful insurrection than that particular one we've experienced in 2021. Hi, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Well, we... We'll be talking about uh, Star Trek Insurrection. Uh, we're happy to have a returning guest today. We talked to him. Uh, uh, he was the writer of yesterday's Enterprise. We got down deep into that. On this one, he was working straight up with Michael Piller, who was, uh, you know, running the ball on this. So, uh, hello, Eric Stilwell. Glad to have you back again. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and um, I, I think it was in an email or something else, but but. D- did I hear you say you actually had to straight up like type the book about the production on this one? Yeah, Michael decided to write a book about the making of Insurrection because he, we, as you know, Michael was the uh, producer on Next Generation who had opened up the script submission process to freelance writers to anybody who wanted to submit a script. <clears throat> and we used to get thousands and thousands of submissions plus endless questions about writing for television and writing for star trek specifically so michael finally decided he wanted to write the ultimate how to write for star trek book for all the people who were interested in what goes on in the process behind the scenes so when he started writing the book he would dictate all the um chapters onto the little micro tapes and i would have to sit there and play it back and type it up Oh, I had one of my university jobs. I had it for like one week because I hated it. That was, um, I'd have to just like read textbooks for the blind. <laughs> just like, you can't watch anything while you're doing it. You're reading the book. You can't listen to anything you're recording. And uh, I don't know, dictating in that way. I'm just like, wow, that's, that, that, that is a task. So applause to you for that. <laughs> well, and it was sort of painful because you have to constantly be backing up the tape because you didn't understand a certain word or something and you'd have to listen to it like 20 times <laughs> and finally yeah. hey michael what are you saying on this tape? and that that makes my brain hurt even more so uh all, all the congrats um <laughs> I, I guess luke and i'll tell you how we first saw this film 
And, and then you can maybe tell us a little more about how this film actually came to be. I was a uh, young university student buck taking my lady to the movies and decided to go full geek and uh, go to this one on opening night. Um, so, so I actually, um, you know, we're still on Facebook. So I, I went ahead and I said, what do you remember about me taking you to the film? And I have to read that response for made, uh, verbatim, which is, uh, haha, I definitely have no recollection of watching any Star Wars movies. So I guess <laughs> it didn't wow me. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I took my wife to see the madness of King George for our first date. So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, this one—I I mean, I guess insurrection sometimes gets some shade for for not being the one that wows you. But for I don't know, I, I go back and watch this film a lot. Maybe it is a glorified two-part TNG, but hey, I like to watch a two-part TNG, and this one really hits the spot for me. So, uh, Luke, it's been some time since you actually uh, had this one in your in your view. Yeah, so I, I watched it when it first came out. Uh, I wasn't taking any girls to see it because I was eight. <laughs> but then I watched it again when, back in my teen years, I bought all of the Star Trek DVDs myself. And I think I'd watched it since because I'd been very, very slowly making my way through TNG and putting off watching any of the films until I finished rewatching the series, which I just finally did this year. Um, so this was my first time watching it, having conclusively watched all of TNG. I probably had already seen all of it, just not in one continuous run. And I can see why people say it feels like more like a TV episode than a film. Um, I think we've both got different theories on that. But I, I like it. I like Star Trek. And this was just a nice big chunk of Star Trek. See, that's the argument that I used to make at the conventions when people would make the same argument that it's not, it doesn't feel like a feature film. I'm like, but you loved the television series, which is why you want to go see movies about it. So why do you want the movies to be completely different than the television series? I never could understand that. I even told Michael when he started developing the story, I'm like, every Star Trek movie starts off with, the Enterprise is the only ship in the quadrant. I'm like, can we just not do that again? Like, why Why does it always have to be like the cataclysmic end of the universe and only the Enterprise is there <laughs> to save the day? It's like people really enjoy the series and the series wasn't like that on a daily, weekly basis, you know? Yeah, one of the things I really like about this one is, um, like, like you said, it's some crazy cataclysm and this one they're I mean they're they're called to the to this job but they're basically just exploring which kind of is the point of Star Trek well one of my favorite kinds of Star Trek plots is what this film does and that requires there to be other members of Starfleet around which is where Starfleet isn't perfect but Picard or Kirk pushes them to be what they should be and that's what this story is. And that's my favorite kind of Star Trek. And ironically, um, Star Trek Into Darkness, the, one of the JJ movies, has the similar theme. And when Michael first started writing Insurrection, it was the, the working title was Into Darkness because he wanted to emulate the, the, the original, the movie about. Um, into darkness what was that movie the vietnam war movie okay apocalypse where, now. huh apocalypse now 
Yeah, he, he, or, he or that's part of darkness, right? Part so then it's apocalypse. Part of darkness, right? <laughs> and that, that was his his uh, that was his general concept with the original drafts of the movie was to do the heart of darkness kind of story. I guess, can you give us a little more of that uh, ground floor info, like how this movie came to be? I mean, I guess it was like, like I remember as a teenager thinking that next gen films were like locked into the Bond schedule now. It's like one year I'm going to get a James Bond film. The next year I'm going to get a Star Trek film. That's like how my brain ran. So it was like, this one was on its way, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um, it, it's, I, I'm trying to remember why Ron and Brandon, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga didn't, get asked to write this film because they had done the first two films um, but they may have been doing Mission Impossible at the time and weren't available so when Michael was asked to do the film he was very excited about it because it was his first um, feature film that would actually get produced he had written other feature films but um, this was his first one to be produced so they were trying to come up with um, a theme and at some point, I think Michael, Michael always loves to, or loved to bring a personal experiences into his storytelling so that he could write from a, a place of reality, you know, something that he actually has experienced. And he, he and Rick had many, many, Rick Berman, he, they had many, many conversations about what the movie should be about. And I think Michael was also experiencing um, some issues of his age when he wrote this movie because Hollywood is very tough town for middle-aged writers. And they always want to make the deal with the younger writers and the new up-and-coming writers. And so when you get to a certain age, there's a kind of this constant battle to be relevant in Hollywood. And I think that's where this notion of, of the aging idea came from. He's, I think Michael in his book said he was looking in the mirror <laughs> and in his bathroom at home one day applying his hair growth <laughs> formula. <laughs> and suddenly he, he had this revelation that maybe that's what uh, the theme of the story could be but the original drafts weren't anything like the final version of the movie yeah. and i see there was reading something about like Riker like crash landing on romulus as like one of the first drafts i don't remember that per se i do, i do remember there was a fantastic storyline involving Worf and a half romulan half klingon villain character that that was really um it was a great story but i guess patrick stewart really didn't like it the focus being off of <laughs> off of him <laughs> so uh I, and the ironic thing was uh, patrick was in australia at the time filming moby dick and so they had to keep sending him drafts of the script across the international dateline so we would get notes back from patrick that were dated before we had actually sent it <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of funny because he was in the future <laughs> or before i don't know it was one way or the other but kind of like us right now yeah <laughs> so uh, there it was funny when michael was writing the book and he got permission to include some of the feedback from patrick in the book he 
we had to explain in, in the notes of the book the reason why the memo from Patrick was dated prior to the draft date <laughs> because, <laughs> because of the time zone differences. But no, I've, uh, yeah, again, doing this podcast, I certainly have some uh, time zone differences blast me in the head. So <laughs> Matt had a small panic attack just now because my computer that we're using is on UK time. And he was convinced that you were at the same time as that. He's like, oh, no, I've misjudged it. We've got another hour. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the clock's changed in the UK before they do it. I wish we were on the same time zone as the UK, because then the British television channels that we get wouldn't be on so late at night. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the interesting thing was I looked, I was confused when I got the Zoom in, because I'm like, so, so I did a Google thing that said, what time is it in France when it's 5 p.m. in Tokyo? And it said it would be 10 a.m. Tuesday morning. And I'm like, so is this Monday or Tuesday? <laughs> like, is it is it Sunday where you are? No, no, uh, this is this is Monday. We, we This was actually, okay. like, for me, this one was, like, less of a headache because uh, I was like, oh, it's, like, actually the same day for once. <laughs> I don't know why it was telling me that it would be the next day. <laughs> So, yeah, so th this is not a time travel movie, but we, we can certainly throw some, you know, temporal <laughs> headaches on you with it. So, <laughs> yes, um, I'm, I'm going get, off. <laughs> anyway, we'll get a little deeper and I'll, I'll do the quick uh, plot synopsis and then we'll, you know, spoil everything for everyone because they, they should know it already. <laughs> yeah, after how many years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here we go. Commander Data is on a covert anthropological team observing what appears to be a pre-warp civilization called the Baku. But you can't trust an android because when this one malfunctions again, it reveals the team to the natives and holds them hostage. Data's home ship, the Enterprise E, is off exploring or something when it gets a phone call about its renegade robot. Captain Picard would prefer to pick up the damaged goods himself which he pulls off with a cunning plan involving a returning Commander Worf, Gilbert, and Sullivan. With a few moments to breathe, the Enterprise crew uncovers a plan that elements of the Federation, along with a shady alien race called the Sona, plan to serendipitously, why did I put that word in here? Serendipitously relocate the Baku and then siphon off the radiation that is in blessing the planet's home team with eternal life. Once the Enterprise crew figures out the hustle, they are recalled. Picard transforms into movie Picard, defies orders, and tries to take matters into his own hands. The rest of the Enterprise crew is game, so as Commander Riker takes the Enterprise out to play the most dangerous game with some Sonar ships, Picard leads a team onto the planet to shepherd the Baku to safety. Along the way, they discover that the Sona are in fact advanced age Baku that had been exiled from the planet long before for being terrible. 
Sonar ships explode while Picard has a death duel with Sano Mastermind, F. Murray Abraham, or Ruffalo if you're checking my memory, which ends in the offending radiation collector exploding. All ends well, especially since Picard has plenty of shore leave saved to do his Riker impression with um, a handsome Baku lady. You got a spirit so ganky, it's in a can. Strutting cool, like some cat from Japan. All set for the sapper's stage, going catwalking from the Gilded Age. You got an inner spirit indestructible. Just gonna give you what I will, but in fact, it's all up to you to do whatever it is. Serendipitously, serendipitously, serendipitously. Yeah, you know, I can't say words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither can I. Yeah, we're, Now that I've been learning French, I can barely remember English. <laughs> I'm so used to talking to children who it's a second language that I am really bad at remembering complicated words. I think I, I said before, I, I, I used to know some German, and now when I try and think of like a German sentence, like when I don't know a word, I'll put like the Japanese word in there. So it's like even more wrong than it would have been in the first place. <laughs> I, I do that with German too, because I took it German in high school. And then when I can't remember a French word, I couldn't remember the room for the word for room the other day in French. So I'm like, Zimmer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I learned French, Spanish, and German in school, and I think I can remember, hello, my name is Luke. And that's it for all three. <laughs> so um, onto this film uh, with the actors. I guess with Generations, it's like a big deal. I mean, this is Patrick Stewart on the lead. It's their, their, you know, they're going to the movies a little bit with the original crew. First Contact, it's their first foray you know, on their own. And this one, well, it, it, was it routine uh, actor-wise at this point? <laughs> Is, um, is Frakes the first actor who got to direct more than one? Oh, uh, Nimoy. But Nimoy didn't, did he? He did three and four. Yeah. Because <laughs> oh, I thought Shatner kicked off because I thought Nimoy didn't get to do more than one because... No, no, Nimoy did three, four, and Shatner was like, I got to do five or I'm going to like, my head's going to explode. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> so so <laughs> Frakes would be number two on that. But uh, okay. he, he I, I would say he made more of a career for himself as a director. Yeah, well, you, you think of him <laughs> as a director now, right? He directed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who can forget Thunderbirds? <laughs> <laughs> Wish I could forget uh -huh. Thunderbirds. <laughs> I'd still like to watch that one day. I haven't yet. Uh, like I said, if we're going to do Thunderbirds for the podcast, we'll do one of the puppet ones first. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you, I know you. we've already said you were uh, sending some messages back and forth with uh, Patrick Stewart. Uh, if you want to elaborate or, on that or give us a... Some heads up on how the other actors ended up in this movie. We, we would certainly be game for that trivia. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that Patrick Stewart also negotiated himself an executive producer title on this movie. Um, <clears throat> when you're in demand, you can get whatever you want. <laughs> um, I, I remember Patrick um, always felt like in the feature films he wanted to be more of the action hero character rather than the you know staid british captain on the bridge who who does everything uh, by the book so you can tell in this movie he definitely has that action hero segment i i even read about it in in your little stream of consciousness. <laughs> 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 yeah, you <laughs> I like so that, I, 
<laughs> that's one element that I recall. Um, and I, I know that when I told you about the original storyline with Worf and the <clears throat> half Romulan, half Klingon character, which I thought was a fantastic story. The Pat- Patrick at the time, I recall him specifically saying that he hated the Romulans and they were the most boring aliens that we had ever encountered. <laughs> Which I then found extremely ironic when they did Star Trek Nemesis and the whole damn movie is about Romulans. And not only that, the entire first season of Picard (laughs) is about Romulans. You have to face the thing. He hated the Borg. He hates the Romulans. He's got to face them. Maybe maybe he's come around on it since. But yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because I actually really like the Romulans. I think the rest of the cast, you know, everybody wanted to do the movies. I don't, I don't think there was any um, struggle um, getting any of the cast. I thought it was fun that they had a cameo appearance for Will Wheaton finally. Uh, So, you know, I don't think there was any issues enticing the cast back to do, to do another movie. I think by the time they got to Nemesis, um, Brent was, kind of tired of he was kind of doing the Leonard Nimoy syndrome I am not Dave <laughs> and then later on you know writes the sequel biography I am Data <laughs> <laughs> well he's, he's been on the show again so he seems yeah. pretty game for that I'm used apparently to he's coming today. back in the next season as well so it's interesting maybe not as Data but because oh, there was also the um the new Nunian Singh character in Picard as well, so I guess he'll be coming back as him. Right, right. That's what I, what, what I would yeah. assume. Or you know, you can have like hallucinatory datas if you want. I mean, that's that's pretty much uh, well, well established that, at this point. Well, now that Picard's an android, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe data's like an engram somewhere in the back of his mind. You know, that's 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 what's fun about sci-fi. You can go anywhere you want. Um. <laughs> I do find it odd in this one. He's back to doing the very naive young data. Mm. But he looks kind of old now. <laughs> yeah, they do kind of drop the whole emotion chip on this one a bit. Well, they, they just have that throwaway line. He left it at home. Oh, right. Okay. Because I, I know ne- Nemesis, they the right, right novels where they explain why he doesn't have it anymore. <laughs> I think it's difficult when you're doing the feature films because there have been so many episodes of Star Trek to try to do anything entirely original. So to me, the movie reminds me of who watches the watchers <clears throat> and then and i've never personally i i've never been fond of the starfleet conspiracy stories <clears throat> because i think it goes against the grain of what gene ronberry wanted the the future human race to be about so to me to have like evil conspiring fleet admirals and it happens so many times, you know, just on Next Generation and then in the movies. <clears throat> I don't think that was something that Gene Ronberry would have really liked. So I, I've always, I've always shied away from those. I don't lines. like if Starfleet itself is doing the. Which this one, it, they do imply that Starfleet had approved of the project, but I like the stories where an individual captain or an individual admiral is wrong. But you know. Picard comes along and he really gets Starfleet and he does it the right way. Um, which even TOS had a few episodes like that where Kirk meets another captain and Kirk oh. does the right thing and they did the wrong thing. 
which was what I thought was going on here. But then he says, no, Starfleet approved all of this, which is a pretty grim message. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's sure. one of those things where, you know, one more pass on the script, you could have fixed that. <laughs> but between this and then the Borg stuff in First Contact, it feels like they were trying to say, oh, and that this was all happening at the same time as DS9, that it is like a darker era in the Star Trek timeline. Like it's not the sort of super utopian TNG Star Trek at this point in time, which is a shame because that's what I like seeing <laughs> these guys operate in. Right. Well, the Enterprise itself at least operates that way yeah. in this movie. <laughs> I mean, that was always a challenge for the writers. And when, when Michael wrote his book about insurrection, he, he had a whole chapter about it called Roddenberry's Box. He felt like they'd been put in this box of rules that Roddenberry had created where like all the characters on the Enterprise are friendly co-workers and there's no arguments or disagreements and so that's very difficult if you're trying to write a drama about people and and so that was one of the reasons when they developed deep space nine they had so many alien characters on the show like the bajoran first officer and odo and all these quark so they could create more natural conflict between the characters without violating gene's idea that Starfleet and humans and the Federation are all <clears throat> above that type of, you know, petty conflict that we've, that was sort of the dream of Star Trek and one of the appeals of the original series. I think people thought, oh, in the future, we're going to be better. We're not going to be killing each other all the time. And so a lot of that sort of seeped back into the, into the formula. Um, before I move too far on into a film, I, I, you know, the guest cast here is uh, maybe first contact is a, is a mind blower, right? This one, um, it's mostly, I guess, F. Murray Abraham, who is, uh, you know, of course, well known for being a Solari. Am I saying it right? Sol Solari and, uh, and Amadeus, a fantastic actor. Um, and I, I guess, I don't know, for me, the, like, there are other good roles done by character actors, but he's clearly the one that kind of sticks out the most for this particular one um the two that stood out for me were actually donna murphy and i've just looked at her imdb the reason she stood out for me is because she's in spider-man too ah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um the admiral himself was played by anthony zerb who's the leader of the council in the matrix sequels all right he, he was very good too i i, I might have mentioned him but i couldn't i didn't know the actor's name so yeah so that, i mean they're both just <laughs> They're playing to type, yeah, yeah. But because they've done other big genre roles, they stood out to me. Also, they weren't under like an inch of makeup, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a, a, you know, Abraham definitely made the mistake of not going all Malcolm McDowell and being like, "Hey, don't you know, put a bunch of makeup on me." He he was clearly in that chair for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That was, was a little cool look, though. He was in the chair on screen and off screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we've got four hours of him in this chair. We might as well film it and put it in the film. Yeah. <laughs> Let's peel that skin off. <laughs> but yeah, that that still, I, I, I guess I can't get a facelift because I've seen this movie. <laughs> the image of the, the face warping like CG is definitely one of the images that stuck with me since I was like eight years old. It was that. And for some reason it was data's head floating in the 
when he had the invisible suit from the neck down. Oh, I like that. Those two images have been stuck in my head since I saw this film back when I was eight. <laughs> it's definitely a different perspective of seeing a movie at that age. Yep. Oh, yeah. Mandates shut the gate. Her breath, it's a blast. A backdraft to burn down my final day of living. Each day as if my last on passions ebb and flow Can't count other flowers These flowers of Ado um, Get a little deeper into the design and stuff Of course the Enterprise is the same Enterprise we saw in the last film I, I like the village in this film I thought it was cool It's it it a good like I mean, I guess it's kind of a standard Star Trek village, but it it just hit, it seems to hit the nail on the head pretty well. <laughs> but maybe it's a Star Trek village with a slightly higher bu- budget. Yeah, but it, it kind of melded like, you know, I, there were a few like kind of Arabic motifs, a few like, you know, sort of Italian motifs, just kind of a fun, you know, um, conglomeration of those sorts of things. It looked like a picturesque place to holiday. Yeah. <laughs> I love I, I love that location. They filmed at one of the lakes out in the out in the near Calabasas and uh, I got to go out to the set a couple times which was fun because usually you're stuck at the studio and don't get to go on the location sheets and what's interesting is they they literally just built that whole village in the middle of nowhere and I think I went out towards the end of the the shoot for that segment of the movie and they had these giant pallets of of river rocks just sitting around like three feet tall for all the paths and things that they had built and i said to the 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 set guy i'm like what happens to all these rocks after the movie and he's like oh we just throw them out i'm like what i'm like you you don't put them back in storage at the studio or something no just get rid of them I'm like, well, I'll take one of those pallets of rocks. So I actually ended up building a, a, a water feature in my backyard up in Santa Clarita with all the rocks that I got from the search. <laughs> a waterfall with a fish pond at the bottom. Yeah, waste not want not, right? <laughs> Matt, you were wondering if the the like snow-topped mountains in the background were real. I think they really went on location up in the mountains. Um, whether or not every single scene was literally the background, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, the spaceships flying but in they did, but they did film it on location up in, I mean, in California. I mean, I'm an East Coaster, right? You, you, East Coast US, you got to drive quite a way to get different scenery, you know? California, not so much. I mean, we live in Japan now. It doesn't take so long to find a completely different vista, but... You know, if you're from Atlanta, Georgia, you're going to be doing quite a bit of driving to see something different. <laughs> I used to joke with a friend of mine from Baltimore that she had never seen a mountain. <laughs> now, Atlanta, we just have one big, weird mountain, Stone Mountain, with Confederate generals carved on the side. Yeehaw. <laughs> I'd barely seen mountains until I moved to Japan. Now I'm obsessed with them. So. <laughs> Japan's nice. You look at the mountain and say, I think I'll walk up that one today. So, <laughs> but that is the great thing about feature films is you've got a better, a bigger budget so you can go on some pretty cool locations for filming. 
I, I guess First Contact had a fair amount of CGI, but this one definitely, I guess, pushed that button a little harder. Uh, the Briar Patch has some, you know, this is the point of CG where people were still like really having to think about what they were doing. So, mm. you know, it looks cool, like the the venting and moving around the. Uh, I don't, I don't remember what the uh, Techno Talk particles are, but those things. <laughs> Probably neutrinos. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> I assume I assume the spaceships were still models. I, I don't think so. That's in the feature film here. Well, I couldn't positively say, but right, I wasn't involved in the post production. I think even DS9 had gone mostly digital by this point. So because this isn't that long after, because Independence Day, it's all models. I yeah, this is this is only two years after that. Yeah, that's a you have to film. you <laughs> have to consider how quickly the technology was changing in the industry because if you remember the very first time we saw like facial morphine was in that Michael Jackson video, <laughs> and and that then became like a standard thing with Odo on Deep Space Nine. It yeah. became an everyday thing, so that happened pretty rapidly. I guess this is one I know seeing in the theater when it came out, this is a time when it was like, oh, this digital is really like upping the game before, you know, people got lazy about it, I guess. Mm. <laughs> but I was watching it last night and I, there wasn't an effect shot in it that didn't hold up. Really? Okay. Apart from maybe his weird little pet thing. <laughs> I was just going to say that was one of the cool things. In the movie. It looks super cute. But it definitely and, had the, and those little butterfly things that were floating around. Yeah, the hummingbirds and stuff look good. <laughs> but his pet, it really reminded me of something from like Galaxy Quest. It just had such a 90s creature design to it. Well, these films were released within not more than a year half of each other. So, <laughs> And of course, when I see stuff in movies like that, I always think the licensing department needed a toy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If, if I can buy a toy of the weird little animal from Star Trek Interaction, I probably will. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't think this, I was like, oh, they didn't have toys for this, but I was like, oh, wait, when I was like eight years old, I had the whole like first season TNG crew in, you know, plastic molded form, so. Well, last time we <laughs> talked to you, you mentioned that you couldn't find an Enterprise C. And since then, I bought Matt one for Christmas. No, no, he said he, he didn't find one that you you had to build. You, okay. You didn't okay. have to build, so. Yeah, I haven't Matt built, has to build his. <laughs> I still haven't built it, but but I almost don't want to because every morning I open my closet and I get my my clothes and the Enterprise C is also there. So once I build it, the box will be gone. I mean, <laughs> I not throw the box out. I just leave the box here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I wanted to bring up well, before I forget that um, I had an I, I I got to be involved in a lot of things with this movie, like when they were trying to come up with the title. Um, I can't remember what the original title was going to be. But Rick Rick wasn't really fond of it, so he wanted everybody to like submit ideas. So I got to submit like a whole list of ideas. I I don't remember who finally came up with insurrection, but we had quite a little contest going on coming up with the right title for the movie but there there were all sorts of uh, interesting things that i had also suggested maybe they should try to use um, a pop song in the final credits of the movie to reflect the relationship between picard and anish and 
the idea that I had, which I thought was the perfect song, was Viva Forever by the Spice Girls. I was about to say the Spice Girls, but it wasn't going to be my choice at that time. <laughs> and, and, you know, Rick Berman completely dismissed the notion at the time, and I just thought, you know, you guys just missed an opportunity here. And, and then... I feel like now in the new movies they, they have Beastie Boys and all the, the music and I'm like you guys should have listened to me back then. No, I was gonna I was gonna like rebut your not rebut but just follow up your suggestion with oh or it could have been a Spice Girl song but you just went straight there you blew my mind. <laughs> well, man. You should maybe you should play that song on your show because it's the perfect song if you listen to the words of it. It's like it's like wanting to live forever and being young again diva forever blah 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 it's like it's practically written for that movie and like and of course the spice girls were huge back then yep. so it would have been the perfect end title sequence for the movie maybe i'll do my my cover version you have for backing vocals yeah definitely i was about to suggest <laughs> the same thing i would have loved it if there'd been a spice girls song in a star trek movie just so i could <laughs> I saw Spice for on opening night, man, with my fresh red college tour. <laughs> maybe, maybe your uh, girlfriend would have uh, remembered the movie if there was Spice Girls at the end. <laughs> no, no, this, this was the sausage party. This was my freshman college dorm. Yeah, yeah. Insurrection was a proper date. <laughs> okay. You know, but she might have remembered the movie if there wasn't something Star Trek. In yeah, it. yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I um, a few, when when we mentioned Into Darkness a little bit already, and um, I did see that it was like a preview in Japan, and I, I went in there and I just had a oh my god, my my manager was there, <laughs> who I'm like, why is she at a Star Trek film? And then oh, because she's got she's super into Benedict Cumberbatch. That's why she's uh. here. <laughs> <laughs> so it just like blew my mind. But uh, yeah, sometimes it's weird. Yeah, something like that really will get other people into it. So. <laughs> So hey, well, I got I got to see the insurrection. Here. I got to see the insurrection um, premiere in Las Vegas. They had it at the old Bally's Hotel on the Sunset Strip, and they flew everybody. They didn't fly me, but they flew a lot of the, the cast and studio folks out there. Paramount apparently has a private jet, so the, some of the producers got to fly on that. And and all I I remember in the opening of the screening, Cherry Lansing, who was the head of the studio, came out to introduce the film and and mention the writers and producers. And I remember she mispronounced Michael Pillar's name, which was so embarrassing, <laughs> Pillar or something like that instead of Pillar. And but what was really cool was um, I got to write in this limo with Michael's family and his mother-in-law was an actress from the 50s and this one this woman her name was sandra and his wife's name was also sandra so her mom's name was also sandra so it was funny writing in this limo because if you could imagine that marilyn monroe had lived until she was in her 60s this was sandra's mother and she was typical of that time frame from the 1950s she had done some movies and stuff and uh, she just looked like she could have been marilyn monroe in another life <laughs> and here i am writing in a limo to the movie premiere of star trek insurrection and i and i it was so hollywoodish i, I thought it was fun <laughs> um was that tied i'm, I'm just curious i i 
I, I've only been to California one time. I met my friend in uh, San Francisco. Our destination was Prescott, Arizona. And it was like, we could go the Los Angeles loop, you know, route around or the Las Vegas. And I chose Las Vegas because I, I wanted to, to do the experience, Star Trek, the experience, right? I think it was 2002 right. or so. Was that, yep. did that have anything to do with the, uh, did they, they link that in with the uh, premiere in Vegas? I don't recall that being involved, but uh, there was a separate time when it when the when the experience first opened that they had this huge blowout party in Vegas, and I was at that as well. But one of the most embarrassing things happened to me at, on that night at the premiere of Star Trek: The Experience, because you remember when you go on the ride and the shuttle at the end crashes back into the basement of the Las Vegas Hilton. I do, Luke doesn't. <laughs> and, you, and then you get out and there's like a janitor and he's looking like all shocked. I thought the actors were so amazing because he actually looked like he was the janitor at the hotel. And then I was staring at him so intently that I like walked right into one of the slanted door like frames and like banged my head like so hard that I got this huge welt on my head so they were all the all the hotel staff were freaking out and they were like you have to sit down we have to call a doctor to come and look at you. <laughs> and I'm like whatever it's not a big deal but they made me sit in a chair right at the entrance of the whole place in with all these hundreds of people at the party and everybody was there all the cast of deep space nine all the cast of next generation everybody was there and it was just so stupid that i'm sitting there with this giant lump on my head because i was mesmerized by the whole experience <laughs> what's pretty Kristen cool. mesmerized I, I still i to this day i'm, I'm really not sure how that transport uh transporter effect worked so you know props to that <laughs> that was cool that was cool I, I love that place. It's too bad that they closed it down. Yeah, it's a shame I never got to go. See, I'm in my head. I'm picturing that the welt on your head just turned you into a Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I had two, I could be a Ferengi. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You need a warp core breach from the bar. That's what you need. <laughs> Those warp core breaches were amazing, weren't they? Gigantic globes of alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> dry ice. Good times. That was a cool place. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, that's, that's where that little lawn, you know, the, after the nineties Trek Renaissance, but before it got back on the horse, that's, that's when it kind of just went out. That's too bad. I, I mean, the, food, the food was even good. It was. I'm, I'm a guy who wants to go back 120 years and go to Coney Island Luna park too. So, you know, lost, yeah. lost. Well, you, you've got your, your Mickey mouse there. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, you get the theme park vibe. Part of part the of part magic. of the magic, right, right, right. You know, you know, Coney Island is on Stillwell Avenue. Oh, is it okay? I, 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 <laughs> I went there. And, um, I guess it's two thousand two. I made sure to ride the Cyclone, and then I had a neck ache for two weeks. <laughs> I, I've never been there. I, okay. I really wanted to go. It's on my it's on my bucket list. No, I'd rid, I'd ridden the Georgia Cyclone. We had a Cyclone Georgia for many years. Like, I got to ride the real one hurt my neck and then later on when you know internet reviews were, were more um easy to find it was like oh yeah the georgia one's actually kind of better even though it's not as classic it, it's a smoother ride so <laughs> i learned that the hard way 
Um, where are we? Insurrection, yes. <laughs> so, Riker and Troy go back together. And, and Riker lost that beard. See, this yeah. is the weird, you know, confluence of time where you see uh, Jonathan Frakes beardless since, what, 1987? <laughs> and I, I, until I read your little stream of consciousness, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> I, and I wanted to watch the movie, um, but I don't have any of the DVDs anymore. I, and I, I thought it was on Netflix here because we get some of the paramount plus stuff on uh, netflix here because it's not a, some of the streaming services aren't available but they only have the new movies yeah we get that for the new shows and the new movies but and uh worked on the movie is uh that that, that does us so whatever <laughs> but i thought the wedding scene was pretty cool i think that's next film which one the wedding Oh, the wedding's the next home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, I'm confusing what movie I worked on. <laughs> no, yeah, so because in, in my head, I'd remember they don't get together at all until Nemesis. But no, they start they start hooking back up in oh, this I one see. and they get married. Maybe that's where Will Wheaton was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm confusing the movies. And I I'm just disappointed he's... that they never have a, a Beta Z wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and unfortunately for Will Wheaton, um, yeah, I think even his cameo is actually a deleted scene on Nemesis. And yeah, yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. Naked Beta Z Wedding, just to... Just to I know. think the actors would have done it 15 <laughs> years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> they could have had like like the, um, you know, the 80s fern, like just placed in the right spot. Yeah. It could have been like sort of that Austin Powers thing. That would have been I mean, awesome. There is, there is CGI now. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Austin Powers it without the CGI. I'll do I'll do the Beta Z wedding if you CGI a six pack onto me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Every time there's a, a Beta Zoid wedding, they they never. It's even even her mother on Next Generation gets married and has some dress on. But I'm like, you Beta Zeds. Real Beta Z weddings are for the novels, of course. So I bet they could do it in the new shows. Yeah, they get away with They're it. They're dropping f bombs all the time. They can show us a bum. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've seen any Betazoids yet in these shows. Huh. No, they're just waiting for that opportunity. <laughs> um. The great talker. On the lamb again with the great talker. Oh no, I guess we should look into the the insurrection itself. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm talking like as in like you know justified, not justified. I, I think we're all pretty much on the justified page, but just just the fact of trying to show you know a. Um, rebellion of this sort in a, in a Star Trek film. That's that's the main point of it, which is, as you said, uh, against the uh, Gene Roddenberry grain a bit. But uh, I, I think they well, I don't think well. Gene would have been against the notion that Patrick, that, that Picard and his crew would start an insurrection against something evil or bad. It's My issue is just that there was the bad to begin with. Mm. Like, but the but Starfleet again again how many times is it corrupt and and weird conspiracies going on? I mean, it happens so frequently now. It's like, is the whole Starfleet just bad? But it's like your same point about data. 
he he goes he breaks and goes wrong and does something evil so often that it's like well actually maybe it's not safe to keep him around <laughs> and i was being yeah. snarky it's obviously justified in this case because he discovered the conspiracy got damaged and then did things weird so yeah so it's a justified malfunction this movie not like the time he just straight up steals you know the enterprise d or something but it's just the nature of long form episodic storytelling right if there's got to be a crisis every week if you actually step back and look at it it's pretty insane that all these people are still alive yeah <laughs> how many near-death experiences does it take no wonder they need an onboard counselor i, I did note. well I, I don't even think i put this in my notes i might have a little bit but uh I did note once uh, Picard gets out of his uh, Starfleet digs, he, he's kind of going like Han Solo with sleeves for his for his look. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen... I was going to say commando, but I guess that's not the right terminology. <laughs> oh, Luke might like that better. Yeah, I like, but he, did, he didn't strip down to just his wife fronts and paint himself, so he's not quite commando. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen people argue both ways in terms of who's actually right in this film. Because if you look at it from a relocating a people to steal their natural resources angle, then yeah, Picard's definitely in the right. If you look at it as taking medical technology and taking it from the privileged few to share with everyone, then huh, maybe the other guy was actually right. But you know, they could just build build a little retreat somewhere on the planet, and then everyone wins. Yeah, I mean, you can visit the planet anytime if you want. Yeah, I, I guess you get overpopulation at some point, but uh... right. Yeah, guess I haven't thought about it that deeply. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm ripping that off from a tweet that I read. But <laughs> what, watching the film, you're 100% on Picard's side. You're like, what these guys are doing is not acceptable. Yeah. They need to be stopped. I mean, isn't that the same thing in the James Cameron movie with the blue people? Yeah. Avatar. <laughs> yeah, Avatar. yeah, yeah. No, I liked your title. <laughs> movie with the blue people <laughs> yeah well i mean it's in the both blue cases, lieutenant uh, uhura <laughs> yeah. this could easily be the new riser yeah well, i was gonna say in both cases I think it doesn't, it only it doesn't really work it doesn't doesn't it not work when you're not there the, the aging thing it only works when you're there you have, that's why i was like I, I guess they get overpopulated with people just wanting to be there but it reverses you go out yeah, so, you, you hang out for three months you leave you're you're good to go this would be our chance on star trek to see like a limited visitor visa <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. can stay here for 12 months then you're out <laughs> you could do horrible things here get a disease and you'll rejuvenate and lose it yeah <laughs> New Riza. Yeah, that's why Riker likes this place. <laughs> what 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 do you carry on Riza? Oh, Horgon. Yeah, yeah. They can have their own version of that. I have a, I have a little Horgon. <laughs> <laughs> do they work in France too? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> not, not since I got it from COVID. I got it from a Rod Roddenberry party in Las Vegas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Just kidding. <laughs> Well, hey, we're we're Horgonless here, so <laughs> put your keys in the bowl and put your Horgon on your shirt, and you're good to go. <laughs> Insurrection could have been so many other movies. <laughs> yeah, but um, my head was trying to make like an insertion joke, but none of them will work. <laughs> anyway, it's it's a, it's hard. Well, I mean, trust me, there there was there were. Oh, I'm sure that VHS tape exists. Yeah. <laughs> 
but yeah, in your direction. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was keeping back from making that joke for the past few minutes, but uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> um, we, can, we can edit that out. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't get edited. <laughs> you but um, it is hard. But what is your listenership? What is what is the? Uh, most of our episodes are listed explicit. It's fine. <laughs> but how many how many listeners do you have? Not that. Not huge numbers. Matt, Matt got asked that by a potential guest and they turned us down. So obviously not enough. <laughs> that was from the other podcast. That was <laughs> but uh, yeah, some, some are in the triple digits. We're not huge. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see where we roll from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was going to say it's hard not to come down for card side. I mean, I, I, I guess that's, you know, good actors, good characterizations. It's like, no, you, you cannot not go with Picard, like in the context of this movie. Right. <laughs> And I don't know, taking, like, I don't know, if someone else has something great, which is what the people with the Baku have, you, you just can't take it. You can't take, hmm. I mean, that's that's where, you know, I'm, I'm not like a religious dude, but you don't covet other people's things, especially if you're going to take it by force. Well, the real Starfleet thing to do would have been to land on their planet, be like, hey, we come in peace. You guys have got your thing. Can we have this section of the planet on the other side of the planet that you're not going to notice us? Instead, they made a uh, you know a duck blind that they hoped no one would notice. Yeah, uh, rolled from there. We come, we, we come in peace. Shoot the kill. Shoot the kill. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, well, because I've just recently watched the whole series. Um, I can't, sorry, I'm not good at remembering episode names, but it's the episode with the Native American planet, Journey's End. Journey's End. They tried to re relocate them because of the Cardassians, and there's also the one where Worf's human brother. Homeward? Secretly, yeah, secretly steals the people and puts them on the holodeck. I'm not surprised I can rattle off episode. Dice. So I feel like a bit of those came into this film a little bit. I mean, when you said Native American planet, my brain was like Kirok. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. the original Star Trek series. Oh right, right. Yeah, now, I, I know. There's been a bit of not not quite criticism, but people have noticed that there was the uh, moving the Klingon. Uh, was it Worf's brother? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, move, move. it's been a while since I've seen that one, to be perfectly honest, but it's kind of the same conceit of uh, sticking my holodeck, moving yeah. where I need to go, and then offloading them. Every Star Trek movie basically takes something from one of the episodes and expands on it. Like, even Star Trek The Motion Picture, people say, is basically the Nomad episode. Yeah, or the pilot of yeah. what was going to be that 70s, that 70s show, Star Trek style. Then Wrath of Khan <laughs> is, like, straight up a sequel to Space Seed. That's a sequel, though. It's, yeah. It's somewhere but, else, so, yeah. Okay. But, but <laughs> how, Darkness is just Space Seed. <laughs> how original can you be, though? Yeah, when there's, there's 10,000 episodes of Star Trek. No, there's really... Well, that's like, what I'm saying. I'm saying all the movies do it a little, so I don't see it as a criticism of this film. There's only like five stories anyway that Hollywood tells, right? So <laughs> you just you finesse yeah. them and make them yeah. as interesting as possible. <laughs> Definitely. It's it's oh my 
again, I, I, as a young lad on a, on a fun date with this one. And I'm like, this movie's 22 years old. Ouch. (laughs) But how does it hold up today? This is not one of the Star Trek's people tend to watch. It's one of the Star Trek's I tend to watch. And I, I bet a few other people too. Um, Nemesis, I straight up usually avoid unless I'm just really hankering to, you know, just just have another bout with it. But Insurrection, I, I really enjoy this. This is a warm blanket of a movie for me. <laughs> I think well, I find that when it's mentioned in uh, in Facebook groups and stuff, it actually gets a pretty fond response from a lot of people who say it's one of their favorite movies. Well, just now I opened the IMDb to look at the actors, and the critic reviews are really low it's like sixes and fives but all the user reviews are really high it's up in the 80s and 90s so i think i'm gonna fall down the same place i did with generations where i can see why people were disappointed when it came out in the theaters because it wasn't different like first contact was Mm. but now when i just watch it as some star trek it's a really good two hours of star trek and that's all i want yeah. I guess it goes back to that concept. I don't remember you taking me to a Star Wars film. Yeah. <laughs> like, like if you're not a, if you're a hardcore Trekkie, this really does hit all the buttons quite well. And if you're not, it was like I guess that was nice. Um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, like I could have gotten like, oh god, I don't believe the time we saw that ridiculous sci-fi film. It, it, so it wasn't that strong. That's good, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, I, I really enjoy watching this one, but I'm also it's better than Star Trek Five, right? <laughs> it is. we're the two guys who like star trek 5 it is guys. better than star trek 5 but star trek 5 <laughs> there is a little bit of like like just a little ironically like it like yeah for that one like i like the clunky effects i like the fact that these guys in their like garage in new jersey had to work this stuff out <laughs> you know i'll allow for that i'll allow for the fact that you know shatner wanted to be a captain of the mountain and all that <laughs> this one i i really don't have like a ironic criticism for it. i i do like it quite well <laughs> It also continues the trend of so far, because I've always heard about movie Picard being this ridiculous action idiot, hasn't lived up to that. Like Generations, he's purely just film Picard. First Contact, yes, sorry, he's TV (laughs) Picard. First Contact, he's doing action hero stuff because he hates the Borg and that makes sense for the character. Here he does a little bit of action hero stuff, but he's most of the film he's not trying to kill anybody. He's stunning or he's shooting drones. And he's only fighting to do the right thing. He's not just being a gun ho lunatic. Okay, the the last the last um, test will be when he's driving that AT. And now, yeah, I'm thinking like, is this all just coming from Nemesis? Because I do remember there being a pointless car chase. <laughs> I mean, I think the worst thing. I mean, one of the bad things about Nemesis was that weird filter they put on the the camera that made it look like it was sepia or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like. What is going on? I mean, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but overall, I think for me, the only reason Insurrection feels like a TV episode is because everyone's having a good time. Yeah, it's all just the, fun. <laughs> all the other TNG movies, Picard's miserable. <laughs> There's this one, we actually get to see him, you know. He's out in the sun, he saves the day, he gets a girlfriend. <laughs> and my question about the girlfriend is, What's up with Beverly? Like, is she or isn't she? Well, if they get together, they're just going to divorce anyway. So he might as well, you know, go on with the Baku lady, right? Um, Can you stop time? She stops time. Can you stop time? Uh, Every now and then I've done something really stupid. 
and time has stopped briefly while I think I'm going to die. Okay, I'm just going to say... So maybe maybe Beverly could have said, I can stop your artificial heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to throw in, I, 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 you know, when I wake up a little earlier, I'm supposed to, sometimes I try and like induce a dream. And since I just watched Insurrection, I found myself in a lucid dream and tried it for myself like this very morning. And it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so the movie inspired me a little bit. <laughs> well, if you couldn't get the Spice Girls, you could always have got a bit of, uh, if you could turn back time. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you could find some way. It's Cher, there is Cher on a battle, Cher on a battleship. There, it came out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine her video on the bridge of the Enterprise. <laughs> Be, does it still have like the guns? I feel like that's necessary. <laughs> she, she turns to Picard and says, "Resistance is futile." <laughs> I want to see Cher do that. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, as the guy who you know spent a few years as this as your job, how how is it holding up for you, Eric? <laughs> the movie? Yeah. <laughs> watch it. Well, I, I know you didn't just watch it, but you you lived it so in your mind. So. I've seen it a few times. Uh, over the years and i i think it's i still enjoy it it's entertaining it has nice um visual here's the bells can you hear yeah there we go we, <laughs> we got them in now must be 11 o'clock no. <laughs> it's time to evacuate and go on a death march to the caves <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think the movie holds up i mean there's there's definitely movies that i'll watch over and over in insurrection is one of them nemesis isn't <laughs> i concur like honestly i think i've actually watched this more than generations in first contact just because it's, it's just a fun one to just go live in for an hour and a half or in a little change <laughs> in your experience has the reaction to it changed over the years i do feel like we were talking about earlier that now when it when it comes up in different star trek groups on facebook there's a lot more fond reaction to it and i think it's the same reason that you said it's watching it on tv is a different experience than being all hyped up to go to the movie theater to see a new star trek film and and i think maybe in in the theaters it was a little bit disappointing which doesn't make it a bad movie i i know michael was obsessed with the with the bad reviews coming in. Um, that's all in his book too. And speaking of which, Michael's book was finally published by his wife. Yeah, um, I did read that one twice to just show you how geeky I am. <laughs> well, it's a and it's a huge book, right? And uh, the ironic thing was um, when Michael was writing the book, he was under contract with Pocket Books to to publish it officially through paramount and then when he he decided to share it with the studio executives including sherry lansing to make sure everybody signed off on it there was a mid-level executive at paramount who who took objection to michael talking about the screening of the early screening of the film with sherry lansing and some of the feedback that the executives had provided which i don't remember the details but um they decided they just decided i don't think sherry lancy never even read the book but this one guy just decided we can't publish this book and michael's like well i can take that out or rewrite it or whatever if that's your objection to the book but it was like they wouldn't even 
respond to him. So, so the book got canceled by pocketbooks, but Michael got his lawyers to get the studio to agree that the rights would revert to him, that he would own the book and not Paramount, which, which they would have under the contract with pocketbooks, right? So I remember years later, Michael was still trying to figure out how to get this book out to the fans. He wanted the fans to have it. And he and he really wanted it to be a, a guide for young writers who are interested in writing in the business. And Michael was a big supporter of his alma mater, the University of North Carolina, and he started a, a writer's program and helped fund it. And he wanted this book to be like a textbook for for students who wanted to learn about writing for, for feature films. And so when he got sick with cancer years later, one of the things that will always stick with me as long as I live is he he made me promise to, to him um, that somehow I would get the book out to the fans. He wanted them to have it, even if it was for free. And and after he passed away, I I did make multiple attempts serendipitously. <laughs> See, I can't pronounce those words either. And uh, like there were fans who were obsessed with wanting to help put it out on online. So I'm like, all right, here, here's the files. I have all the files. <laughs> so, but then as soon as it would go up online, they would get cease and desist letters from Paramount Studios. And I was thinking to myself, Paramount doesn't own the rights to this book. So they can't tell you to cease and desist. Uh, but of course, we couldn't really say that because I didn't want to make it obvious that I was the one trying to get the book out. And over the years, then even Michael's personal estate lawyers started sending out this, this cease and desist letters. So I'm like, well, what are you going to do? He, his estate owns the rights to the book. So finally, when, when Sandra got the book published, I was very happy that it was finally out. I don't think it had quite the broad range of distribution because it's a very expensive book, but at least it's out there. I think I got through one of your earlier efforts, but. Uh... <laughs> and I think Michael uh, really um, talks about some interesting inside stuff in the book. And you really get a, an idea of what it was like working on Next Generation and writing for these characters and all the the different issues from every angle, you know, the pressures from the cast, pressures from the studio, pressures from the fans. Michael was one of the people when I worked for him, when he was writing this movie specifically, you have to go back to the 1990s, mid 1990s and think the internet was still um, in its infancy then. And some of the Star Trek groups, it's not like, I, I don't even think, I don't know if Facebook was even started then, but anyway, there was a, there was a few groups on the internet, like uh, this friend Steve, this friend of mine, Steve Kretzler, had started a, I can't remember what it was called, 
he had his own Tate website where people could post and, and put their opinions and stuff. Michael was obsessed about going on his web page every single day to see what the fans were talking about or speculating that this movie would be. So Michael really took in all of this feedback from the fans and and everybody when he was developing this movie. And I don't think a lot of people in Hollywood do, do that kind of thing. No, with all the social media now, I, I feel it's more common to hear people say like, I'm ignoring all internet yeah. <laughs> whatsoever while I'm doing this. <laughs> I mean, Michael was so impressed with this kid's Facebook page or not Facebook, his own website that he, he invited him to come to the studio. And he, at the time he lived in Florida with his parents because he was a teenager and he got permission to come to to Hollywood, um, and I think he we invited him to the premiere of the movie because wow. I, at some point he was still a minor when we went to Las Vegas. I remember that, and, and it was like we were his guardian, <laughs> <laughs> so he could be there for the for the premiere of the movie. Uh, chaperone, right? Isn't isn't that the more French word? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pretty hysterical. Um, but yeah. Michael, Michael was obsessed with that feedback from the fans. And, and sorry, could you shout out the title of that book again? Because uh, we—I don't think we said it. <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember. It was—it was called uh, "Fade In: The Writing of Star Trek Insurrection." Okay, Luke, Luke seems to be on it again. I—I I, I actually read it twice and enjoyed it it is because i think a lot of books get into a little more of the star speak where this one really got into sort of the uh you know gears and grinding it takes to make a major movie and work out the script and all that sort of stuff oh you're close fade in the making of star trek insurrection okay okay <laughs> i i thought it was the writing of because that's why i went more... to google and google corrected me so <laughs> it really was more about the writing of it and the process because yeah. Michael um, Pillar was always a very um, focused person who would spend hours behind his computer and didn't want to be disturbed. And he wasn't a super socializer at parties and stuff. So this, sorry, my, my Alexa is talking to me in the background. <laughs> I guess I, I triggered her somehow. Um, but I actually call her computer. Yeah, <laughs> um, anyway, Michael uh, really, I think, ex exposes a lot of his in internal thought processes in this book. It's, it's a really, I think it's a really great read if you really want to know what's going on in the mind of a writer. He really got into all the details of what inspired him, what frustrated him, what scared him. You know, it was like all those things that you never really got from him in, in person were in, in that book. Don't you think? You read it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's the whole point. Like, just because he'd go through, like, each iteration of the script drafts, which you never really hear people do much. Like, oh, well, this changed to this. And, you know, like, you see all the elements change. So usually it's like, oh, there were five drafts. And that's that's. And he I would said. also admit, like, when things didn't work. Like, this didn't work. And you know he, he wasn't afraid to just be honest about you know, I, I might be getting it wrong i, I think i mentioned like Riker crashing on romulus and I, I might be mixing up my it might have been war for all i know but the whole point is 
this sequence would be so insanely expensive. You can't start the movie this way. <laughs> Especially in the 90s. Well, one of the things Michael always used to tell writers who wanted advice, and he even said it to me once when I was working on yesterday's interface, he's like, don't think about the budget when you're writing. Just write just write the story you want to see and leave the budget and all the that to the producers and the people who have to build the sets and design the costumes they'll figure that out you know if we can't have ten thousand extras we'll, we'll fake it somehow but let's <laughs> see right which yeah right which one then then pull in the limitations where you know you have to so um, i mean that, and, and for me when when we were writing that yesterday's enterprise trent and i i, I think i slipped into that zone where you're thinking oh we have to think about the budget and we can't do this and we can't do that. So when, when they actually redesigned the whole bridge and did all those cool things in the episode, I was actually really surprised because they went beyond what I thought they could do. And, and, and so I always thought Michael's advice was great. Don't limit your creativity to a budget. Um, I think we've basically gotten uh, our thoughts on the, the insurrection, but I'll just throw the, the ball out to anyone that wants to have a final thought on that. They did make a beanie baby of the pet, but you can't buy it anymore. My mom might <laughs> have it. She collected beanie babies. <laughs> I, I did remember that there was a toy. Yeah. And, and do you guys remember Tamaguchi's? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's gonna get one for you and my daughter she's she's uh, when she was nine a couple of years ago she like wanted like an old school one but we couldn't find it <laughs> so tamaguchis were huge during the making yeah. of star direction and michael pillar's daughter brent wanted one so bad and of course as michael's executive assistant whenever <laughs> michael's daughter wanted something eric was going to find it for her <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with Michael's wine collection. Even though he was allergic to wine, he collected wine. And whenever he read something in the Wine Spectator that he had to have, it was always the one that was <laughs> sold out. <laughs> and I mean, I used to make calls to New Zealand and places trying to find wine for him. But anyway, his daughter wanted a Tamaguchi. And somehow, I don't know how I did it. I even got him tickets to the final four basketball tournament one time <laughs> and a hotel room at the last minute in a sold out town. <laughs> but anyway, his daughter wanted a Tamaguchi and I found it and, and she was so happy. And Michael was so happy. Next thing I know, Rick Berman's calling. I need a Tamaguchi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what am I? The Tamaguchi hunter? <laughs> Oh, yeah, anyway, yeah yes. That, that's yes, a game yes, too. you are. <laughs> and, and Michael had written this screenplay. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was sort of a it was sort of a comedy sci-fi back to the future kind of movie. And uh, in it he had this personal assistant that was like a ninth generation Tamaguchi <laughs> computerized <laughs> personal assistant. It, it, it was a big thing back then. We've done Spice Girls, Tamagotchi's, Beanie Baby. This has been a real trip back to the 90s. <laughs> and Star Trek. Who knew there was so much culture? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I guess wrapping up, uh, 
Eric, I, I know your internet presence has your, your boldly going blog. If you want to talk about that or anything else you have going on at the moment. <laughs> well, I do have my boldly going blog. I also have the boldly going Facebook page, which is mostly about my wife and I's travel adventures in France, but I do throw in some Star Trek stuff from time to time. And I am, I am out on in the social network universe if anyone wants to find me <laughs> we also have our my yesterday's enterprise facebook page which is all devoted to star trek so if anyone wants to find me there that's where i'm at luke you want to do the thing yep you can find this podcast on twitter at mlsfs pod you can also find matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com if you've enjoyed the music you've heard in this podcast that's where it comes from you can find my other podcast. Speaking of the 90s, I do a Pokemon podcast. You can find that on Twitter at Luke Loves PKMN. And for all of our podcasts, if you want to support them, you can go to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. That is it. So I guess we're going to wrap up this insurrection for the day. And uh, Eric, of course, thank you again for joining us. Uh, cannot get that perspective from anyone else. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thanks again. Cheers. Who's closing the door today? Is it you? Is it me? I haven't thought of one. <laughs> Let's just stop time. Yeah. Yeah.